Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, I'm Rory Stewart. And I'm Alistair Campbell. Welcome to our new podcast, The Rest is Politics. Look, Alistair, we... we... We had grand plans for what we want to talk about. We were going to, I think, talk about our different backgrounds, our different political interests. We were going to talk about mental health. I was going to talk about Afghanistan. But we just suddenly found ourselves, I think, facing this insane situation in Ukraine. Probably the biggest single thing since the Second World War in terms of European war. I know, and it's just incredibly depressing. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in finding it very, 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 very hard to sleep at the moment. And I know we'll have lots of time, hopefully. We'll, hopefully this is the first of many, and we'll cover all sorts of stuff on this podcast but frankly there is only one place to start we're recording this on the morning tuesday the first of march so how do we start talking about ukraine i think the first thing is is just the the scale of it, it it's almost unimaginable that um for the first time since the second world war we're seeing an invasion of this scale taking place in europe and it undoes so many of the assumptions that people had since 1989, since the end of the Cold War. I mean, I remember when I was chair of the Defense Committee and I was trying to argue for why we wanted to keep some troops in Europe and tanks in Europe and heavy bridging capacity. Essentially, people laughed at it and were saying, actually even quite recently, that the days of wars, land wars in Europe were over. I think part of the problem is that Putin has been planning this kind of thing and building up to this kind of thing for some time. And at the moment, when you think about where it goes, he either retreats in humiliation, and I think the chances of that are negligible, uh, or he just keeps going and going and going and going. And, and I think part of, part of Putin's um, modus operandi, particularly in the kind of the the second half of his of his rule i think i think it's been interesting to watch him develop but he 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 doesn't stop I and mean, we saw that in you know he's still in syria uh he exploits weakness wherever he sees it and i think at the moment he's seen an awful lot of weakness and he's exploiting it so it's very very hard to work out where it goes there is one big thing we can do which will make a huge difference but i, I mean i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about putin but quickly i think the one big thing is oil and gas i think that is so central to the russian economy and it's going to be very costly for Germany and Italy, 40% of their gas, more than 40% in Italy's case, to cut that off. And it'll have an impact on the European global economy. But it can totally be done. There are alternative sources. People can convert to oil. They can bring in liquid natural gas from Qatar, from the US. We need to do that immediately. That is the one thing that Putin assumes will not be done. And that's the one thing that will have a huge impact. But tell us, Elsa, you've actually met the guy, which I haven't. What, what, what is your sense of Putin as a man? Uh... Well, I saw him in various phases. Um, we first, Tony Blair first met Putin before he became president. And I remember the foreign office being a little bit worried that we shouldn't be seeing him before he became president, but everybody knew that he was going to be president. And it was a little bit sort of, you know, trying to get ahead of the game in a way. And it's funny, I was looking at some of the news footage that they were playing on the on the BBC the other night. He looks completely different today to how he did then and it's not just age because actually his age he is de-aged with all his botox and his plastic surgery and all the rest of it but he looked very almost timid um very slight very small very quite quiet and i think at that stage had decided that he was going to if you like look more more favorably towards the west than historically maybe people like him have done um and I think, I think then the next phase was where he started to perhaps understand how difficult reform was in Russia, but also I think he started to feel his power. And I, th I can remember, I think it was 2003, and I left Downing Street in 2003, so that was probably the last time I saw him face to face. He was a completely different animal already. He phoned, the, 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 the Russians uh, got in touch with number 10, they invited Tony Blair out. It was literally like a day trip. And we thought this might be a bridge building exercise. And we got there and we landed and we got flown to some place in the middle of nowhere, which is his vast dacha with swimming pools and stallions and butlers and all the sort of stuff you associate with, you know, newfound oligarchical wealth. 
And he proceeded to, I can't even, that humiliates the wrong word because Tony doesn't sort of lend himself to humiliation, but just to abuse him and to shout and to, he was really, really raging about the Americans in every single aspect of foreign policy. And basically he didn't say Bush's poodle, but it wasn't far off. And was he doing the, this on camera or he was just doing this privately? No, what happened was we had, we got there, had a meeting. Then there was a very short sort of, uh, press conference and he really laid in I, i'll never forget trevor cavanagh of the sun was there and i could i'll never forget the look on trevor cavanagh's face he sort of i think they'd gone there thinking this was just a sort of you know going to be a non-event day trip and he suddenly realized oh there's quite a big story here and then we went into dinner and it was at the dinner that he really really started to lay in um and i remember coming out david manning who was our main foreign affairs advisor and he said, I've never, ever, ever seen anything like that. And I said, that's sort of the death of diplomacy. He said, exactly. Anyway, so that's 2003. We're almost two decades on. So if that was the change between 99 and 2003, why should we think that he hasn't <laughs> changed in many, many, many ways since? It's, it's bizarre watching him too, isn't it? Because as you say, his, um, his face has that very, very odd shape that you get from kind of billionaires who are using weird sort of, I don't know what they use, some unspeakable sort of treatment on their, on their features. And it's, um, and as you say, this insane table mm. is extreme COVID regulations. The sense in the last um, televised event that the head of his foreign intelligence service looks completely sort of paralyzed and terrified when Putin's talking. The, the invasion of Crimea, it was said in 2014, was an all-night event where he was consulting with these people, trying to convince them. This time, it seems as though he didn't consult at all. And that's actually what's made the really impressive achievement of American intelligence. Um, because really, they called the whole thing. I mean, it's the one big success. In fact, actually, we should... People sometimes ask what the use of intelligence is. But here... Because the CIA basically found the entire invasion plan and then decided to go public with it three weeks ago and said, this guy's going to invade on this date, completely destroyed Putin's attempt to pretend it was a spontaneous reaction to you know, genocide in Ukraine or some mm. provocation in Ukraine and actually gave the West three weeks to build up and also gave three weeks to a lot of people to embarrass themselves saying, don't worry, he's never going to invade. The Americans are crying wolf. This is ridiculous, including actually, you know, the ex-head of the British intelligence service saying, mm. if anybody thinks this guy is going to roll into Kiev and try to occupy Ukraine, of course, that's not going to happen. So I, I think it's been interesting that, that it's probably the, the, the biggest intelligence success in, in the last 25 years. Yeah, it's very hard to define it in those terms when you see what's actually happening now. It's all very well to know something's going to happen. It's what you do to prevent it. Yeah. And what do you do when it happens? And I think that's where at the moment we look a little bit, as you indicated earlier, like we're, we're catching up after the event and, and we're, you do have a sense of, you know, we all feel powerless, but even the people in power, I think, are feeling quite powerless. And there's a lot of bluff, isn't there? There's a lot of people, you know, saying we're sending X amount of money and it turns out to be, you know, we're sending 80 million at the same time when yesterday, I believe, Europe transferred 300 million to Russia to pay for oil and gas. Mm. So the kind of gap between what we claim we're doing and what we're actually doing is still very extreme. But what, what do you do? You, you talked about bluff. What, what, when you have a situation where he's, he, he denies he's going to invade, but everybody knows that he is. And as you say, the Americans kind of got it yeah. almost hour by hour. Um, I did feel a little bit worried that the, the default position of most of the Western leaders as that was happening was essentially to say to their own public opinion, don't worry, we will not be fighting him in Ukraine. Now, I completely understand why, okay? But if you're sitting there as Putin and your entire strategy is founded upon strength, are you not seeing weakness that you think they can't come back from? He can come back from lies because that's what he does. He can yeah. say, I'm not doing something. He does it and he gives an excuse. Yeah. They can't come back from that. Yeah. So I, I think one of the interesting things there is, it, is the dynamic that happens inside government, which is that these politicians will be sitting with their intelligence people and their generals who will be pointing out to them that they have very, very few military options. And this is partly because, you know, Britain, it's extraordinary what's happened to the British military. 
right? When yeah. the British military went into uh, Iraq, it was able to deploy 2003, when he left Downing Street, it was able to deploy nearly 70,000 soldiers onto the ground. Today, the British military struggles to maintain three or 4,000 soldiers in the field. And the entire size of the British Army is now smaller than the amount that was deployed in, in, the, in the Second second Gulf War. And they will have pointed out that we don't have the tanks. We don't begin to match nearly 200,000 Russian troops. And they will also be falling back on all the hard-won lessons of the Cold War. And the central lesson of the Cold War was you do not go into a hot war with nuclear-armed Russia in Europe. But but that the, the point about it, when Putin comes out and says you'll face consequences like you've never felt before and people think, oh, nuclear, and then he actually does the thing about, you know, putting nuclear forces on, upping the alert, and then that nonsense, you know, about blaming Liz Truss and all this sort of stuff that they that they were doing. But I guess what keep what is keeping me awake at night, I think, is actually whether you think there is, whether we think there is anything that can be, can be done beyond what is being done? Or are we actually, the minute you start to talk about no-fly zones and all the rest of it, are we literally saying, well, that's Third World War? Are we actually in the Third World War already? Which Fiona Hill, the I've just been reading an interview with yeah. her, American uh, Russian policy expert, she's basically saying we've been in the Third World War for some time because he has been waging it. She makes the point, people keep saying, would he use nukes, right? Well, she makes the point that he already has in terms of killing some of his dissidents. And what was it that was used to poison Litvinenko yeah. in the UK? Yeah. What was, what is Novichok, if not a yeah. kind of a, a we yeah. weapon that you could. So yeah. I think that it, her point is that we keep wanting to believe that he won't go further and he'll go as far as he can get away with. So, so then the big gamble that we've made, the big gamble the West has made since 1989 has been to take a peace dividend. So we've obviously put an enormous amount of money into building our economies, building our social services off the back of dropping military spending. So France probably saving, proportional terms, maybe spending £100 billion less a year than it would have been spending if it had kept up its old defence spending. And all of that in the UK and France, Germany has gone into building up our health systems, our education systems. And what we have concluded is that that means that we have better, more resilient, more prosperous societies. Mm. And we need to make that count now. We need to show that... It's not Putin that's the sleeping giant. We're the sleeping giant. And that when democracies wake up, we can use the fact that our cumulative economies, Europe, United States, are 20 times the size of Putin's economy. And we have to use that. And that's why I think we must immediately stop the oil and gas imports and not worry about the fact that it will have an economic impact on us because the economic impact it will have on us is tiny mm. compared to what it will do with Russia. But I don't think it makes sense honestly, to imagine that we are prepared to get into no-fly zones because a no-fly zone is effectively aerial combat with Russian planes in a non-NATO country. Yeah. No, but, but by the way, Roy, I don't think you can get away. I don't know if you're still a conservative, if you still identify as a conservative, but all that stuff about and we're spending more on health and social services, one of the reasons that our military has been cut to the bone was a decade of austerity. I think we just have to lay that on the record. And that was a political choice by the party that you so loyally served and campaigned for. That's absolutely right. Alistair, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the austerity and the cuts, but we were spending probably 5 6% of our GDP on defence, and we yeah. now spend 2%. It's considered a stretch. Yeah. And that was something that under Mrs Thatcher and under John Major and under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, very conscious peace dividend, we don't need these big troops. We don't need to spend 5% of GDP on defense. So we've made that decision. Mm. And let's now vindicate it. Let's justify it by demonstrating why economic strength actually counts and matters. And that's what we're not doing yet. I did. Uh, I watched um, Schultz's speech in the Bundestag. I don't know if I told you that I've, be, I've become re-obsessed with ger the German language. I, during lockdown, I, I did a few Goethe Institute courses. And I now I just watch the German news a lot to help my German. And what was really interesting about Schultz's speech, I mean, he's not a firebrand orator by any manner of means, but there were three points in his speech. It was about 25 minutes, half an hour long. There were three points where he got a kind of spontaneous standing ovation, okay, from pretty much the whole of the parliament, I would say. One was at the end when he just said, we are fighting for to defend our values. And, you know, that was obvious. They, they, they got up for that. The other was a, 
a bit where I think he looked genuinely surprised at the, the level of the applause that he got when he simply said we should salute the courage of those people in Russia who were protesting against Putin's war. He called it Putin's creek, Putin's creek, Putin's war, relentlessly. He, he barely said the word Russia, but he praised the Russian, the Russian people. But then the other bit was when he said, and he made this huge, for the Germans, this huge change where he said, we are now, he committed to at least 2% of GDP on defense. And virtually the whole parliament, there were a few kind of heckles, but virtually the whole parliament got up and, and applauded that. And I thought, that, that is a change. An incredible change, because it will make Germany the military superpower of Europe. And they're talking about, you know, he's talking about spending 100 billion almost immediately to upgrade their forces. That's you know more than twice the UK defence budget. I mean, the German economy is much bigger than us. So if they start spending two percent, we're going to end up with a very very significant German military. And it, it's as you say, it's not just you know change for Germany. It's a massive change for Schultz himself for his political mm. party. But it also casts Angela Merkel in a very interesting light. I mean, she's always been one of my real political heroes. She, I think, she's extraordinary, and she always seemed to me to be. I think she did brilliantly in the early days of COVID. I thought she was very brave. Uh, in the way that she dealt with Syrian refugees. I think she was a very thoughtful, steadying politician. But her legacy is now going to be badly damaged by the way that she miscalculated Putin. Mm. Well, the other, the other former chancellor that was around in, in our time, of course, was Gerhard Schröder, who's um, and he, so, so in league with Putin that it's... That, uh, that, that, that's bizarre. Can you talk, talk to me a little bit about that? Because that, that is something, if I'm going to push back at the austerity thing, I'm already <laughs> pushing back at you. One of the things that, one of the things that always seems a bit weird from, from outside is that, of course, people uh, quite rightly have stereotypes of right-wing people going out making large sums of money with banks and things. But it's quite striking, uh, you know, and it's not just true of New Labour. In the case of Schroeder, he was a proper left-wing politician from a working-class background, and the guy decided to make tens of millions effectively working for these big Putin-connected oil and gas companies in Russia. I mean, what's going on there? I honestly don't know. I, I always liked uh, Schroeder. I thought he was a very impressive guy. I thought actually he did when we were doing that whole Neuer Mitter thing, you know, the third way. He was, I think he was genuinely trying to to push in on reform. And it, and it felt very, very exciting what was going on there. But then I think once he lost power, I think there's no doubt he, he, he chose that route. And um, it's very, very depressing to watch. He actually gets a lot less grief politically in Germany than you, than you might expect. I think people know about the relationship, but he, it's, it's, it's a very, very strange thing. He, he's, not, he's not perceived as I think he... He would maybe, particularly now, I mean, look at the way that some of the British politicians, look at, look at the way that Farage is rightly, in my view, getting it in the neck at the moment for some of the things he said in the past about, about, uh, about Putin. Uh, I can claim a little bit of credit for that. I, my very first ever interview with GQ I did was with Farage and, and uh, I didn't deliberately lay a trap. Uh, I just sort of basically asked him what he thought about Putin and he, he started to wax lyrical about, you know, how much he admired strong leaders and, and so forth. And Alex Salmon did the same. I, I, I interviewed him it's as very, well. It's very weird, that, isn't it? And it's also, sorry, again, look, I'm very interested in this too. What is it that's going on with bits of the old left, which makes them instinctively so pro-Russian? I mean, you get a hint of it with Corbyn, you get a strong sense of it with George Galloway. What on earth is going on? Because the, it, it's as though communism vanished. So you can understand why there was a, you know, a good response to Russia when it was the great standard bearer for socialism. But what on earth leads people to still be sympathetic towards Putin's Russia? I think it's part of a, a, a sort of romanticism. Uh, I think Stalin, you know, don't forget there are, there are still Stalinists around who, who think that that is a, and if you go back to, um, you, you, you know, we, we talked about Salisbury earlier. Uh, just remember, do you remember how Corbyn, trying to get Corbyn, and I think Seamus Milne was the sort of big influence there, trying to get, Corbyn, just to sort of, it was almost like, you know, there are good people on both sides. It was, it was, right. like, it right. was right. like, that was the, he couldn't quite bring himself. And as our security services came out and said, well, this, you know, we've got this and we've got this and we've pieced this together. And then it's, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're straight into what about, you know, what about Iraq and what about yeah. this? And yeah. I don't know is the short answer, but I think it's, I think it's, um, I guess with somebody like Galloway, you know, no, I'll never forget Galloway, of course, with Saddam, he was a, you know, I salute your courage, your strength, your indefatigability. Um, they like the they like the powerful people who are against us, right? I guess it's as simple as that. I don't know. And, and anti-American too. 
They like the anti-American bit. Yeah, the, the American is the big bad guy, and, and we're too close to the Americans. That's the view. Um, and there's something, though, about about Putin. I was going to say it was a, it, this is a, very much a male thing, but then I saw – I was watching a demonstration in um, – in Paris, uh, on the on the news, and it was the it was the gilet jaune, and there was a a young, uh, very French, very attractive young woman who was talking, and the the, the, the and the, needless to say, this was on RT Russia Today, and the interviewer said, "So, but what do you want from Macron? What do you want in these protests?" And she said, "We want him to be like Putin, looking after his people, like Putin looks after the Russian people." It's incredible. It's, it's extraordinary. But I, I, I remember when I first went to Iraq in 2003, I took a taxi from Amman into Baghdad, and it was a long, long journey, and we were going through Fallujah, and it was quite dangerous, and talking to the taxi driver. And he said to me, Saddam Hussein is, you know, the most wonderful man. And I said, mm. um, but, 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 you know, we passed one of these big palaces. It was happening. You know, these guys built these big palaces. And he said, no, no, Saddam has done so much for his people that – he doesn't need to do anymore. He can now build big palaces for himself because everybody in Iraq is is so well off and it's so terrific. And then you've got these little hints of these extraordinary moments. I mean, there was this, um, this great moment just before the invasion where there was an interview with one of the Iraqis and um, Saddam, I think, had just got 99.9% in the election. <laughs> and somebody said, is it really true he got 99.9%? And the, the Iraqi said, perhaps even more. <laughs> <laughs> got the full hundred. Listen, there's been a lot, Rory, about around in our debate about the the influence of the sort of oligarch class and 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 the you know obviously Abramovich very very high profile, Lebedev very high profile. Uh, I mentioned all the the oligarchs up on Hampstead Heath and an awful lot of MPs, Tory MPs, who have taken money for their local campaigns from. From Russians, uh, and that again, I think, has been part of this, you know, very long-term strategic approach to subverting democracies. Uh, did, did you ever? Were you ever aware of that going on? And were you ever? Yeah. yeah. So you're absolutely right. There was a lot of this going on, and I think in in my case, I had to draw lines between taking money between pe- people who were oligarchs, but I did take a donation from a guy who was a Russian. He was a Russian who worked for an American bank, so he wasn't an oligarch. But it's it's interesting how. Even was that today, for your, as an MP or for your mayoral campaign? As as an MP. Mm. And it was very interesting. I mean, trying to work your way through this. I mean, one of the problems, I think, in British politics is getting to the bottom of these questions of financing. When I was running mayoral campaign as an independent, I was running against people who were spending, and this is um, Labour and Conservative candidates, spending two, three million pounds in those campaigns. So the pressure, and I think this is why we need campaign finance reform, to take uh, donations to try to get up to that. It's very difficult to make two, three million pounds. Well, three, three, million, three million is a peerage in modern Tory <laughs> currency, isn't it? Yeah. But I think, the, I think the people are right to ask the question. I think I would say, in defense of myself and colleagues, it's important to differentiate between taking money from an oligarch who's close to Putin and taking money from somebody who's living in Britain, is British, works for an American bank, and happens to have a Russian surname. Right. I mean, I yeah, think but, but an awful lot, of, a lot, an awful lot of these oligarchs were sort of they, they they were helped to become British in a way that very very few of the Ukrainians currently fleeing war and persecution are going to be. So, and, and then the big question, I guess, in political donations, which which is what tried to guide me, is the question of: Is there a conflict of interest here? Is this person actually going to influence you to do something that you don't want to do? Is this person going to ask you to do something that you wouldn't do? And that, for me, was always the red line. I wouldn't take money from somebody if I felt they were going to put pressure on me or ask me to do something, or if there was a conflict of interest, if I felt that by taking money from this person, I would be prevented from doing the right thing. And I think, to be fair, I don't really want to be fair to Boris Johnson, because I think he's a terrible human being, a terrible prime minister. But one hasn't got a sense over the last few weeks that this has prevented them from being pretty aggressive and challenging towards Putin. Do you really think so? Do you, do you feel he's been held back? Do you feel Well, that- I, f- I feel that on the sanctions they were pretty slow i mean it was it wasn't as you said earlier it wasn't as if people didn't know this was going to happen there'd been lots of talk you know there was lots of talk they're gonna be the toughest sanctions package ever i think we've been slightly drag kicking and screaming in it and i when you looked at the list for example of the the individuals who've been sanctioned by the european union um 
I think that was a far more comprehensive list and with far tougher sanctions. Um, I just, I don't know. And I think it's also very difficult to know when you say you wouldn't do anything with a conflict of interest. I, I think I'd have been very suspicious, maybe wrongly, but I think I'd have been very suspicious about any Russian money. Uh, uh, take, taking money from anybody with a Russian surname? Regardless no, of what their job was, no. I mean, because that—that's—that's that's what we're getting into now, right? People no, are saying you've taken money from somebody who's of Russian ethnicity. They take no interest in what their actual job is. I mean, I think you've got to focus on who the person okay. is. Okay, yeah. okay. I, I guess I'm thinking more about. I forgot the, the, the guy's name who who donated money to over a hundred conservative parties. I don't believe he was doing that for the good of his health. I really don't. Um, now, look, there are. I've donated to the Labour Party, and and and, and I hope I haven't done it in a way of. Yeah, if I was doing it to buy influence, it clearly didn't work because I got kicked out. But um, I, I sort, of, I, I think that I don't know. I'd be, I, I do worry when I see some of the arguments that people like Dominic Raab have been making recently, who I know did take money from Russians, as did a lot. I think it's you know a substantial number of the cabinet had Russian money in their campaigns. I'm not saying quotes all Russian money is dirty. But we did allow London to become uh, the laundromat. That's what they call it. Yeah. And, the, you know, I just I, think it should make people I, very, I very wary. That, I think we should be wary. I think we should be very wary of the way campaign financing works in general. I mean, it's a really big problem. It's a big problem, the amount of influence the trade unions wield. It's a big problem, the amount of influence wealthy people influence over the Conservative Party. Right? I think the way that we fund things is crazy. I think the, the best thing about British politics is the limits on the local constituency campaigns. The great thing about that is that when I was running, it was, I think we couldn't spend more than 17,000 pounds in the last few weeks of the campaign, mm. which meant that that was something that you could raise from you know, your own savings, from small donations locally. The problem is these big national campaigns, when people are spending millions, when the television stuff, it's not as bad as America, but it's bad. No, it's, I nowhere, think, it's nowhere near as bad as America. I think we, sh we would be a much, much healthier society if we stopped this. And I, I mean stopping it all, stopping the trade union money pouring into Labour and stopping the wealthy money pouring into the Conservatives. Right. But then the only way to fund political parties is through state funding. And given the reputation of politics, I just can't see the politicians being up for asking the public to fund it. Much better, though. Much better for our democracy. Mm. All right, Rory, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, we hope you're enjoying listening to me and Rory Stewart prattle away. We'll be back in a moment. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Rest is Politics with Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Each week, Rory and I are going to explore current affairs both at home and abroad. We're also going to reach back in time to recall the events we experienced firsthand when at the very heart of British politics. In my case, New Labour, Northern Ireland, Bill Clinton, Vladimir Putin. And in my case, <laughs> Afghanistan, the Foreign Office and my fight with Boris Johnson for the soul of the Conservative Party. Which... You lost. Uh, we want you to get involved. We want your questions, your observations, your opinions, sometimes even your corrections. Please follow us on Twitter at Rest is Politics. Note, no, the. Now, Rory, that, that was inevitably fairly heavy, fairly sad. So why don't we try and kick off part two by trying to think of something that cheered us up a bit or inspired us? And I'm going to start by telling you a little story about a recent visit that I made not far from where I am now in my house in London to Pentonville Prison. I know that like you, uh, I, I spend a lot of time in prisons and uh, I was with the mental health team in Pentonville. And I'm, I met this guy who's a three times murderer, been in prison for over two decades. And he was telling me about their experience during COVID. And the most moving thing that really sort of did inspire me. He said that once it was obvious that COVID was going to be absolutely awful for everybody, 
and that the, the staff were worried and the governor was worried and the prisoners were worried and so forth. He said there was actually a sort of camaraderie and he realized just how short-staffed the prison staff were. And once they heard about the Thursday night clap for carers, he said they organized it so that they were clapping inside their cells for the staff. That's was, great. Yeah, I was quite touched by that. That's great. So you asked me, I, I don't know whether you can hear in the background, but you can make, faintly hear the call to prayer. And I'm, I'm speaking to you from Jordan. Yeah. I, I live in a house literally underneath a mosque. So I get woken up at four in the morning. And I guess what's making me happy is I've got my, um, my seven-year-old, my four-year-old, my wife here with us. We're working on a project which is working with Jordanians and Syrian refugees, mostly up in northern Jordan. But the real thing that's been making me happy is getting a chance to take my boys out walking. And we walk down and up these steep hills through the, through the bazaar. And yesterday I took, took uh, both of them to a knife maker. And for £10, um, you can commission a really beautiful knife. And Sasha, who's seven, sat there. And he was allowed to work on every detail of how you fit the wooden handle, how you carved the, the metal wrapping around the scabbard, how you... In his case, blunted rather than sharpened the blade. I don't want to have a sharp blade he could poke his brother with. Um, Rory, if you were spotted doing that in your former constituency of Penrith, <laughs> I think you'd be in a bit of trouble, not least with Pretty Patel. <laughs> I probably would, probably would. That's right. Well, the other thing that's, I mean, the other thing, I mean, it's such an amazing, I mean, obviously, um, uh, it's a real privilege to be someone like this. But I was really struck that yesterday we, we went into to buy a pair of um, sneakers for the four-year-old. And immediately, obviously, what happened is that the guy in the shoe shop had a big plate of chicken liver and bread out on the counter, and he wouldn't let us look at the shoes until the four-year-old, the seven-year-old me had all stuck our hands into the chicken liver and got going before the shoes came out. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's really good for them. I think it's, it's, um, it's, I think it's strange for children to grow up only in, in the Western world, and I think it's great to, to be out and about. Oh, I can hear the call to prayer now. It's a beautiful sound. It's very beautiful. He's got a very yeah. beautiful voice. And, and actually, everything is around the city. Everybody starts at slightly different times, depending, I think, on when they see the sun cross the horizon mm. from their minarets. So you'll now hear two or three different calls to prayer, both all starting at different times around this part of the city. I've got some extraordinary memories of, of, of Jordan, good and bad. Uh, I'll give you, I mean, good is the wrong way to describe it, but one of the most extraordinary events I ever attended with uh, with TB was King Hussein's funeral. It was absolutely extraordinary. Virtually every leader in the world was there. And, I, and one of my abiding memories was of Bill Clinton boasting to Jack Chirac that he'd done more bilaterals on the stairs than he had because Chirac insisted on sitting down to do all his bilaterals. Uh, and the sad memory is is that my, I, I was I was in Amman on the day I got a phone call saying that my mother had, had a stroke and I, I never saw her alive again. So that, it's funny, isn't it, how places can have such meaning and so that you 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 end up there and we're we're talking about it and it brings back all sorts of memories that's awful that's awful and i um and i think um that sense as you say of not being able to be with your mother in her last moments mm, it's pretty horrible sad, sad so what, what are you actually doing you're obviously not going the david cameron green cell lobbying route you're not going the george osborne let's have 15 jobs yeah, on different or, or, banks you're or, going a very different route Rory. No, no, not even says he cheekily going the tony blair advising the kazakh route um no, I, I'm I'm working working with a, a non-profit with a, a charity, uh, which is um, working with Palestinians and Syrian refugees, and particularly with craftspeople. So, one of the things that happened with the Syrian war is that these incredible craftspeople who have been operating in places like Damascus and Aleppo suddenly lost everything, ended up in refugee camps, literally in tents or in the back rooms of people's houses, and they often were running quite big businesses, but they'd lost all their machinery, all their apprentices, all their market connections. And we've been working to try to rebuild it because I think one of the things I learned in international development is that it's great to have projects where people feel a real sense of positive pride, where people are not just feeling that they're sort of charity cases and that Brits or Europeans or Americans are coming in and saying, we're going to make you more like us or you don't have all these things we have, but instead finding something which is really beautiful that the world wants to buy and rebuilding incomes, jobs, communities yeah. out of that. I, um, I, I, I remember the, the, the trailer for this podcast. It said, I think it was, I used to be Tony Blair spokesman, now on my own. So I won't rebut 
your vicious attack on Tony Blair's excellent post-politics public service work that he does all around the world. Uh, but I, I will say, I think it's, I do think it's great that you, you've, you've gone down that route. But does that mean, have you chosen to leave Britain behind? Have you, are, you, are you trying to leave British politics behind? I, I definitely leaving Boris Johnson's version of British politics behind. I mean, it feels a bit feels a bit cheap to be laying into him, and when I do think this Ukraine crisis is very serious. Um, but there was definitely—I mean, I've become an independent. I've left the Conservative Party, and I w- have been very, very disturbed by the direction British politics is going. So yes, look, I, I, you know, I love Britain, and I was a British civil servant for I don't know twenty years on and off. Um, but I don't, at the moment, there's no real space for me. And I feel I can contribute more day-to-day working somewhere like Jordan than I feel that there's space for me to do in Britain mm. because I, Boris Johnson is certainly not not queuing up to give me anything to do. I, um, I, I'm a little bit like you. I, I've sort of laid off laying into Johnson too much uh, in recent days with all this going on. But a part of me does think that he'll, a part of him will be sitting there thinking, ah, this is, I, I'm saved now. I can get through this. Nobody's going, nobody's going to get rid of me while there's a war on. I think it's fascinating. I think um, that's one of the other things that Putin's done. I think mm. Boris Johnson was in real trouble. I think the May elections would have finished him off. And uh, it seemed to me inevitable to be gone. And my goodness, he is a guy with more lives than a cat. It's extraordinary. Mm. He, could, he, could, he could still be gone. I still think, I still agree with you. I think he's, you know, it's terrible that we have him as, as prime minister. I'll tell you the other thing that really has been getting my goat in recent days, if we just think about the British response on this, is that look, you were Secretary of State for Department of International Development. Um, and I do think people can criticise Tony Blair all they want, but I do think that under his and Gordon Brown's leadership, Britain became a real, I hate to use the phrase aid superpower, but you know what I mean. And when you see us now scrabbling in the way that we are about whether Ukrainians can come and what the rules are and that immigration minister talking about, you know, can they pick fruit and all this, it's horrible. And, and I just, I just wonder what you feel in terms of thinking, well, there you ran that big department that in this situation would have had an incredible influence over what plays out and it no longer exists. It's very, very sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly sad. I, I don't think maybe people from the outside understood what DFID achieved and how much respect it had around the world. It, it was absolutely not just one of the largest development agencies in the world, but it was seen as one of the smartest, most thoughtful. That wasn't perfect. There were many, many projects that I went to see that disappointed me. But the quality of thinking and challenge that came out of DFID was extraordinary. Mm. And they won't, they, won't, they won't have power within this new FCDO. They, 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 they don't have the power. And you can see that from when you see Liz Truss. And, and there's, there's no sense of it being a priority. Development aid, it's just, there's no sense of it being a priority. Well, the, the budget's been cut and a lot of very talented people are leaving. They can't see the point anymore. It's very, very sad yeah. because yeah. they feel that they're being not taken seriously as professionals. I mean, your bigger point about Ukrainians and refugees is one also I really feel that Britain's missing a chance on. This is an extraordinary chance to step up and form a proper coalition for refugees. That's Afghans, that's for Ukrainians. And we've got really bad at it. I mean, actually, again, Ted Heath in the 1970s made a big, bold, good decision on taking in Asians. Yeah, you got nations. It was a big decision and it was the right decision. And the United States made that decision on the Vietnamese boat people, late 70s, early 80s, very, very similar situation to Afghanistan. Been fighting a war for 20 years, huge obligations, a lot of people on the move. But now really only countries like Canada and Sweden have consistently been taking serious numbers of refugees. And I want, I want us to have a target. I'd like to say that we should be taking 0.05% of our populations annually and that Britain should be making a coalition. That, that's a number just above what the US is taking. It's below what Canada's taking. But it's about double what the UK is currently taking. And this could be a chance to step up. But it's very, but they're pursuing it. It's a very de- deliberate strategy. I mean, it's classic gaslighting. I, I saw an extraordinary quote from Johnson the other day. He said, uh, nobody can dispute that we are leading the way in our willingness to take people. <laughs> <laughs> Not leading the way in taking people, in our willingness. Now, <laughs> whose willingness are we talking about? Um, and look, I do get that the politics of this are very, very difficult. And you've had a situation here where the whole Brexit thing was about, quote, quotes, taking back control of our borders and they want to seem to be tough, etc. But I think their, their whole Brexit strategy looks a bit odd as well when you see the European Union 
um, after a pretty slow and sluggish start like everybody else, sort of getting its act together. And then you see Zelensky, one of his most important calls has been to say, you know, we want to be part of the European Union. And that's, of course, what, what in some ways triggered this. I mean, that's really what scared Putin in 2014. It wasn't NATO. He keeps talking about NATO. What really threatens him is the idea of Ukraine becoming a European Union member. The idea that a proper, democratic, prosperous country right on Russia's borders is what scares him. What do you, how do you feel about I, I wrote a piece a few months ago for the New European. I was sort of trying to be nice to some Tories. And I said that I wrote this piece sort of putting together an alternative cabinet um, that was from the backbenches. And there are some impressive people on the Tory backbenches. Um, you know, when I, in fact, you were talking earlier about people saying we wouldn't, we'd never have another tank war. One of the things I watched the other day was that select committee, liaison committee appearance of Johnson, where he had that, I don't know if you saw it, a pretty stiff exchange with Tobias Elwood. Yeah. Because Tobias Elwood was saying, no, you're cutting conventional yeah. defenses yeah. 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 far too, far yeah. too deeply. And so I, I, I listened to somebody like him. I listened to somebody like uh, Tom Tugendhat. I listened to somebody like Johnny Mercer. I think even listening to Theresa May with all her experience, um, you know, you, you sort of think, well, there's a lot of, a lot of people there that you could imagine in serious positions of, of government right now. Yeah. Whereas I've got to say, and I, you know, I, I hope, I really do think that when I saw Dominic Raab was on the media this morning and I just, he looks like a frightened rabbit. And then you've got, um, I mean, honestly, Liz Truss, I just, she really does seem to think it's about Instagram. She does seem to think the job is about Instagram. It's extraordinary. Just, you know, you're the foreign secretary for God's sake. It's completely mesmerizing. I think the, the other thing that's so striking for me is, is the sense that nobody really prioritizes foreign affairs or haven't for a long time in, in British parliament, British politics. I, I remember when I was running for the Foreign Affairs Committee, as I started, and then later to be Chair of the Defence Committee, Liz Truss saying to me, I can't understand why you're obsessed with foreign affairs. I find it really boring. The last thing I want to do is to be Foreign Secretary. And I, I, I actually, she was speaking for a whole generation. Right? All these people wanted to get on the Treasury Committee, or quasi they want to be on the Transport Committee. Nobody wanted to do Foreign Affairs and Defence. Britain was already beginning to turn very, very inward. But you're right, there's a lot of talent there. And the problem is, of course... As soon as I start praising them, right, as an independent anti-Boris person, I destroy them. But there's extraordinary people. Gillian Keegan's very talented. Alex Chalk's very talented. Victoria Prentice is very talented. There's a lot of people out there. A guy called Andrew Bowie I really admire. But they're not being put in the cabinet. Yeah. Ben Wallace, I think, is doing a good job. I think he actually has surprised people. I think he's been one of the real performers. I, I love I love the way that you said you know I I, I won't name them because it will destroy their career and then you name them so <laughs> <laughs> but now I I I do think because I I've, I find myself in a position particularly now with this going on I mean I've seen you know working with Tony Blair and with Gordon Brown I've seen how hard it is when you get into these real international crises situations so I don't want to just be sort of sitting here lobbing off pot shots the whole time but I do. It just drives me to despair when I when I see the, I don't know. I just I just I can't I can't detect a, a, what I would define as a foreign policy. <laughs> I detect them well, there's, doing there's, there's stuff. No, there's day no to day. vision. There's no serious vision of what Britain is outside. I mean, that, that's and the actually real. The, the the point is that your point about why MPs should be much more interested because whether we like it or not, Brexit notwithstanding, in fact, partly because of Brexit, in my view. We are, we, we are going to have to be much more interconnected in different ways. There's none of these challenges that we're going to meet on our own. No, no. And it's, it's, it's actually also a really sad the way in which things have been run down. I mean, I, I, and actually it started under, under you guys too. I mean, the Foreign Office was much, much smaller by the time, uh, you know, David Cameron took over and is smaller mm. still in relative terms now than when he took in. I mean, it's... We talk about global Britain. We talk about being the fifth largest economy in the world, but the French basically spend twice as much on their core foreign service that we do. And mm. all these countries, France, Russia, China, America, have been increasing their spending on overseas broadcasting. And we've downsized the BBC World Service again and again. The British Council is a shadow of what it used to be. And as you say, diff has been cut down very dramatically. So mm. I think it's very sad. Would you, if you look at the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council and you had to list them in hard and soft power rankings, where would you put them? That's the that's us, America, yeah. China, well, France. Well, I'm afraid that this story is pretty Russia. depressing. I mean, I think America just is still at the top, but boy, oh boy, have Trump and Biden done a lot of damage to that. 
And China, I think as, China and, just and, behind them. And, yeah, and, as, and I think, as you say, Obama's decision on Syria began to do a lot of damage. And I'm afraid if we look back, I mean, I mean, we're now going back a long time in history, but people forget that in Libya, we were in a very strange situation where Russia and China were prepared to support the intervention to protect Benghazi. And then Britain, France, the United States effectively betrayed that deal and changed it into regime change. And that was the last time, really, that Russia and China have been with us on the Security Council. So mm. people need to remember that these tricks that seem in the short term really smart in the long term, in looking 10 years forward, look pretty bad. Uh, then I'd put, uh, I'm afraid, Russia is really throwing its weight around. I mean, in a horrible way. And I think in the end, its bluff is going to be called. But certainly, you know, in terms of flexing international muscle, and then France in Mali, displayed something that we're not really able to do, which is you know, many things went wrong, but they could operate independently at a relative scale, which Britain struggles to do. So you'd put Britain number five, UK number yeah, five. Yeah, at the moment, yes. And I think the only way to turn that around would be to double the spending on our foreign service, really invest in our soft power through the World Service, the British Council, DFID. Mm. But where on earth is the political party calling for that? Right. You know, you imagine going out to the electorate saying we want to double the spending on the foreign office. Everyone will be like, what are you talking about? You know, there's ambassadors sipping champagne in these outdated residences. Yeah, but that's that's part of the problem is that these mythologies have taken hold over decades. Um, yeah. And that, that so, you know, and, and, and meanwhile, those that have been using their soft power assets against us, like the Russians, most notably, we haven't really taken it seriously. Um, what did you think about the kicking them out of the World Cup. And I also, uh, what's his name? Putin's been kicked out of the International Judo Association and he's been, he's been stripped of his Taekwondo black belt. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. I like him being stripped <laughs> of his Taekwondo black belt. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, so I put out a tweet last week suggesting that Chelsea fans might think seriously if they won the cup final about cheering for Chelsea and obviously got an enormous amount of abuse from Chelsea fans. What was your, what was your take on that? Do you think it's... A well, but you, mean, you mean they shouldn't have supported their own team? They should say, well, I wonder whether they shouldn't be have a lot of Ukrainian flags and maybe make a bit of a statement, at least against mm. Abramovich. They did a little bit of that. They, 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 the, the, the Liverpool game, there was a little bit of pro-Ukraine thing going on at the start. Um, but I'm afraid I do think it's one of those areas where we've just, we've just allowed this to happen and it's become so normalised. So I'm not sure that the geo... I was at a football match at the weekend, uh, Burnley... Crystal Palace and actually there were a few Burnley fans who had uh, U Ukrainian flags but they were outnumbered by the Dutch flags to welcome our new striker so I think but but I think that's why in the end people say they want to keep sport out of politics but the fact is Putin has used sport relentlessly as a political weapon both in terms of his personal image the whole sort of you know bare-chested horseback the fishing the judo the this annual ice hockey game that he does with the top players where he it's always wins it's always scores the winning do they call it a goal i know they hit a puck but uh and then of course the games you know getting the world cup getting sochi i think the fact that for example he went to the beijing winter olympics and you had that show of solidarity with president xi around a sporting event and a lot of those people that you were saying who said oh you'll never do this whole thing and never yeah. go the whole way they were also saying i think rightly he's not going to do it while she's got his winter olympics on yeah he'll wait um, till the end so, of the olympics yeah. yeah so they have used sport and i think it's um you know fifa have finally you know comes kicking and screaming they, they tried that sort of halfway house that they'll have to play on neutral grounds again i thought individual countries stepped up i think it was poland Czech Republic, Sweden, they're the three teams that could play Russia in the World Cup qualifiers, and they also were not playing them. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult working out what influence sport or music has on politics. I was, I was really struck by a couple of things um, in terms of influences and numbers. One was, um, and, and I think it's partly about whether people are comfortable taking messages from a different area of life. So I remember a friend of mine was very proud that Victoria Beckham had tweeted out his book and said it was a great book. And I don't know, she's got 3 million followers or something with an Amazon link. And he went on it uh, a minute later, uh, not a minute later, sorry, a day later, and found that only two people had bought the book, right? So clearly <laughs> the fact that Victoria Beckham... And I slightly felt the same with Stormzy and Jeremy Corbyn, that it was an amazing coup to get Stormzy to finally come out and tell people to vote Labour in the election. And at the time, everyone was like, oh my goodness, this is going to totally change the election. This is such a big deal with young people. But I guess there's a level at which 
people think, well, I, you know, I love Stormzy and I love his music, but I'm not necessarily going to take his advice on which way I'm going to vote. Yeah, I'm very surprised about the Victoria Beckham uh, stat. Uh, and, and certainly whenever, whenever I have a book out, I do like it when people with lots of followers tweet the link and say, this is a great book. Um, but the, yeah, I th- I've, I've always had an ambivalent view about celebrities in, in public life. I, I, I look at somebody like Bono um, and I see somebody, and you probably came, I'm sure you came across him in your different sure. work. Sure. And, and, and I look at somebody like Bono who used this fame to develop a platform from which he's become like quite a serious policy and political player. Yeah. I think that's very different. I think somebody coming out and telling you to vote a certain way, I, d- I think it, I see it as a sort of second, third order campaigning thing. I don't think we should overstate it, but I wouldn't understate it either. And I do think in relation to something like this, you know, the one I often think of, when, do you remember when the um, Boko Haram took those girls? Yeah. And like, it just became one of those things that everybody in the world, bring them home, bring them yeah. home. Well, yeah. you know, and then as you say, after a few, after a while, it sort of goes away and we, we concentrate on something else. I think the ones that people, the, the ones that I respect are the ones that stick at it and, and stay engaged and they don't just sort of rent a quote on everything, but they, they have a campaign and they get involved in it. So I, I look at somebody like Marcus Rashford, Rashford in relation to food poverty in the UK, in England, and, 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 and I see him you know, doing something worthwhile and good, which a politician probably wouldn't be able to do in the same way. And he's had an impact. Yeah. And he's sticking at it. I think that's very different to somebody saying, vote Labour. Or yeah, vote yeah I, that's right. And I, I, I slightly feel the same with Bob Geldof. And I think one of the things that he brought is that he's able to talk in a way that a politician can't. And well, he can I, be much, much blunter, much more explicit. Well, I can tell you a story about him and uh, Bono in Cologne at a G8... The G8 in those days, because the Russians were there, and the debt and debt write-off was on the agenda. And Tony was really out in front in terms of pushing for as much as we could get, but we didn't get everything that we wanted. And then we had this meeting with Bono and Bob Geldof in uh, back at the hotel. And Geldof was basically fuck fucking this and fucking that, and <laughs> fucking this and fucking the other. And Tony said at one point, he said he said to Bono, he said, "Listen, you've just got to understand." We're climbing Everest here. We're climbing Everest, right? And we, we, we're, we're up further than you thought we'd be, but we're climbing Everest. And Bono said, Tony, if you look at Everest, you don't say that's a fucking big mountain. You fucking climb it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, yeah, they were, they, were, they were pretty good at what they did and, st- and they're still doing it as well. That's what I mean about them, about them staying in. Well, listen, Rory, that has whizzed by. We've gone way over time, obviously dominated by events in Ukraine. I'm sure, sure we'll talk about lots and lots and lots of other stuff. We're going to be back next Wednesday. Uh, we hope you found it interesting. And if you've enjoyed it, we want you to get involved. We really do want to hear from you in the easiest place on Twitter, at Rest is Politics. My Twitter handle is Campbell Claret, and Rory's is Rory Stewart UK. And thanks again. And we'll, we'll hope to, to see you again next week. And bye for now. Bye-bye.